Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I am interviewing Dr. Thomas Cowan. Dr. Thomas Cowan has studied and written about many subjects in medicine, including nutrition, anthroposophical medicine, and herbal medicine. He is the principal author of The Fourfold Path to Healing and co-author with Sally Fallon of the Nourishing Traditions book of Baby and Child Care. Dr. Cowan has served as a vice president of the Physicians Association for Anthroposophic Medicine and is a founding board member of, a West, of the Weston Price Foundation. He also writes the Ask the Doctor column in Wise Traditions in Food, Farming, and the Healing Arts and has lectured throughout the United States and Canada. Has, he has three grown children and practices medicine in San Francisco where he resides with his wife, Linda Smith. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. I was drawn to Dr. Cowan's work when I learned about his book, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. I think he's a really unique understanding of the heart and the cardiovascular system, as well as a really important understanding of how to create foundational health and how to really support our gut microbiomes and our children's health and the health of our planet in the future. And he's really committed to, you know, speaking out about this. And he has a new book uh, coming out in the fall about vaccines and autoimmunity. And we'll share a bunch of resources where you can learn more about his amazing product line and his book. And please enjoy my conversation today with Dr. Thomas Cowan. Welcome, Dr. Cowan. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me on your show here. Thank you. Well, I, I've known about your work for um, a while now, especially with your book, um, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. And, you know, my patients have learned a lot about your work through the um, information you put out online. And I think it's just going to be a really interesting conversation today. And I'm excited to learn more from you personally. And so most of my audience is always curious about, you know, here you are a conventionally trained medical doctor, and you found yourself studying anthroposophical medicine and, you know, uh, nutrition with Weston Price um, Foundation. And I just would love to hear um, how your journey unfolded um, to really become a specialist in looking at the heart in this unconventional model. So uh, all I can say really is, uh, you know, I ended up graduating early from undergraduate at Duke, mostly because I didn't like it there and I had no idea what to do next. Um, so I decided to join the Peace Corps and, and teach gardening, even though I didn't know anything about gardening. Um, and so I ended up uh, living in a little village in Southern Africa called Swaziland. Uh, Swaziland was the country, not the village. And when I went there, uh, the only other expatriate living in within miles of me had lived and worked on a biodynamic farm in Rhodesia and was in Swaziland escaping the Rhodesian army service. So basically there I was in the hut in Swaziland and he gave me books by Rudolf Steiner and Weston Price on food and anthroposophy and since I had nothing else to do and nothing else to read uh, I read uh, Steiner and Weston Price and at that point I realized that my sort of revulsion about being a doctor was more a revulsion about being that kind of doctor mm -hmm. so that allowed me to think that I could in fact go to medical school and basically from day one so we're talking late 70s I have been pursuing ideas on anthroposophical medicine and food and 
whatever else I could figure out that might help me understand uh, how the human body works and where disease comes from more than the medical stuff that I was given in medical school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I am. I completely understand that. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I'm on a, um, you know, different educational path, obviously, as a medical doctor. But I, you know, I always have compassion for uh, medical doctors in that, you know, here there are this great training, but the tools are limited, right? I mean, obviously, they they serve a purpose um, in acute traumatic care. But, you know, here, you know, both of us treat chronically ill people. And, you know, I'm so glad that you were, you you found those resources resources from so um, young in your journey. So that um, there's obviously made an impact. Um, and so, you know, fast forward, here we are. And I think, um, did Human Heart Cosmic Heart come out in 2016, Dr. Cowan? Do I have that right? Yeah, it was October, November 2016, I think. Great. And so um, that book has really influenced a lot of us in this alternative space to really have this um, other understanding about the heart um, and how um, the heart is actually a potentially not a pump in our um, physical structure, but it has this other purpose. And so can you just um, share about, you know, really how that um, knowledge came to be in your work? And really, what do you mean when you say that the heart is not a pump? So originally, I heard this first, probably in the early to mid 80s that Rudolf Steiner and you know, I just want to point out that just because I say Rudolf Steiner doesn't mean that that means he's correct. <laughs> he certainly knew some interesting stuff and had an interesting way of knowing things. But um, anyways, it's the first place I heard it that he said one of the most important things for the future of humanity was understanding that the heart is not a pump. And then I ran into a mechanical engineer named Ralph Marinelli who uh, did uh, mechanical models of the heart. And uh, I have a website called humanheartcosmicheart.com, and there we put articles under the news section. And so there's an article by Marinelli called The Heart is Not a Pump, so people can read that. Um, the idea basically, it's, and it's important to get in, to be careful with the wording, semantics here. When we say a pump, we mean a pressure propulsion device. And what that means is if you ask the question, why does the blood move around the body? The normal answer is that it's pumped or pushed, or let's even use another word, propelled, because of the mechanical squeezing of the muscular walls of the heart. So in other words, you have this 1.1 proximate pound muscle, which has very thin walls at certain points. And this muscle squeezes or contracts and, and therefore essentially, you know, it decreases its internal diameter. And that muscular contraction pushes this blood around the body. So that's the idea of a pressure propulsion model. Now, what I pointed out in my book after 30-some years of looking into this is that the blood um, is, you know, first of all, it, there, there's a lot of blood. Like the amount of blood vessels in a human body, if you put them end-to-end, -end, is enough to encircle the earth three times. If you put them next to each other, they would cover a football field. So that's a lot of blood and a lot of blood vessels. And we're talking about very viscous, sticky fluid, 
with stuff floating inside. And, and so to think that you're going to take this one pound organ and squeeze really hard and push the, this sticky fluid three times around the earth, just on the face of it is a little bit incredulous. Like that can't be. But it gets even worse because if you do a flow diagram in all fluids, you know, you, you basically measure the volume and the velocity. The velocity or the speed of movement of the blood as it enters the heart is approximately the same as it exits the heart. And then as it goes, as the blood, quote, being pushed by the heart exits the aortic arch and then the aorta and then the abdominal aorta, the big blood vessels, and then it starts going into smaller and smaller blood vessels until it gets to the capillaries, which is the point where it offloads oxygen and food and takes up carbon dioxide uh, and, and water. And so it basically has to stop there. So it goes uh, basically fastest at the heart and then slower and slower and slower. And then it stops at the capillaries or does this little shimmy and then it gets going again. And what they're telling us is that the reason for the movement is back, back when it was moving the fastest. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about that, that's a little strange. Like, first of all, if it doesn't make it go faster, so what did it do to the blood that's this so-called propulsion device? And then second of all, if it goes slower and slower and slower and then stops halfway in its journey, how did it get going again if we're told that the only reason for the movement is the push from behind. And the analogy that I usually give people, it's like getting on a bus from San Francisco where I live to to New York, and the bus stops in St. Louis and offloads passengers and luggage and then takes on different passengers, and then it gets going again. And all I can say is if the bus doesn't have an engine in St. Louis and I need to get to New York, I'm not going to get on that bus. Because I don't know how the bus is going to get going again. And that also tells us that the, the actual reason for the movement of the blood has to be at the capillaries, because that's where the blood stopped. And then if you start it moving then, and then you go up the narrower and narrower, or, or it goes from like a watershed into large venous blood vessels. So as it restricts the flow, like a river going from a wetlands and then into a river, it'll go faster and faster by itself. So the, the, the point of it is you just have to get it going at the capillaries and then it essentially will go by itself. So the pump has to be at the capillaries. Now, there's a third interesting factor, which you know is very interesting for the pump model, which is if you look at the outflow tube of the heart, which is called the aortic valve, and then it goes through the aortic arch. Um, and the analogy that I make here to help people understand here, this is, it's like you have a spigot off the side of your house, and then you put a flexible garden hose shaped in the form of an arch onto, you attach that to the spigot. So that's like, there's the left ventricle with its very thin walled apex, and then it exits upwards through the aortic arch, and it looks like a McDonald's arch, and then it goes up and then back down to the body. And as anybody would know, if you have the uh, spigot off and then you turn it on really hard, 
because obviously if you're going to pump three times around the earth, you better pump pretty hard. Uh, what would happen to the aortic arch during this maximum pump? And the answer, obviously, is the hose would straighten, right? And so you would expect that the aortic arch would also straighten. But in fact, anybody who's seen a cardiac catheterization, which is what I actually had a job doing for a while, um, you see the aortic arch bend in, which makes absolutely no sense. If you're pushing uh, fluid through a, a arch-shaped tube, how is it that the arch bends in what, just at the maximum push? What that tells you is that, is that the heart is creating a suction, not a push. And so Steiner actually said the heart functions like a hydraulic ram, which means that hydraulic ram you put in a fast-moving river, and it has a, has a gate, and then it has flexible walls behind the gate. So as the water moves into this, uh, this holding tank, the gate holds it back, the walls expand, and then there's positive pressure built up on the, the incoming side of the gate and a vacuum on the opposite side of the gate. And when there's a pressure differential there, the gate will open, the, the outflow tube will suck in, just like you see with the aortic arch, and the, the water will be distributed to wherever you want it to go. And that, more or less, is exactly how the heart works. Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that because the holding tank, which we call the left ventricle, actually takes this incoming blood, which is moving of its own devices, not because it's being pushed by anything. So it has a movement mechanism or an autonomous movement mechanism. And then it comes into the left ventricle. The left ventricle creates a vortex or a spiral formation out of this incoming blood. And then when the pressure differential builds up and you create a suction on the, on the, on the back side, then the gate opens, the aortic valve opens, the, the vortex uh, essentially sends the blood to where it needs to go. And there's no force required. There's nothing to wear out as opposed to a pump, which couldn't possibly do this even for a day, let alone 70 years. And the whole thing suddenly makes perfect sense mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's an excellent explanation. And I know a very new idea to most of the people who are listening. And so, so Dr. Cowan, um, a lot of our patients um, who are chronically sick, they have what we would call microcirculation issues. So that would be, you know, um, cold hands and feet or poor circulation in their extremities. And um, I immediately think of their capillary system, you know, when we have microcirculation issues. And so um, what would be, you know, drawing back to really um, your understanding and kind of this framework with the, um, you know, the, uh, there's a force or a propulsion in the um, capillary um, system. So can you walk us through what that looks like? And then, you know, people have issues with that. What should we be thinking about, you know, maybe tools or strategies and how to um, support their body in remedying this? Right. So, so the first thing I would say is, is based on what I just said, we've, we've identified that the source of the pump or the, the, the source of the movement of the blood has to be at the capillaries, not the heart. 
Now, I, I would also point out that there's essentially two people who are talking about this. There's me and there's an anesthesiologist named Bronco First. And on my website, um, I wrote it, I put an article that he wrote. And he wrote a book about this called The Circulation Pump or Impedance Device or something like that. And uh, he, he says basically exactly the same thing, except in a much more uh, <laughs> academic and I would say boring way. Uh, but, uh, but it's very good. Um, and his idea is that the heart can't possibly be a pump, that it's an impedance device was actually the foreword was written by the head of cardiac anesthesiology at Harvard Medical School, who said this, re this uh, misunderstanding is the reason we can't treat congestive heart failure any better now than 50 years ago. So there is relevance to this, and I'm not the only one who thinks this. Now, getting back to your question, so why does the blood, wh what is the pump, and why, why does the blood move in the microcirculation? And the other thing I would point out is that Bronco understands intimately why the heart can't be a pump. And he says that the blood is an autonomous organ that moves of its own devices. But at least in my take on it, he doesn't, he hasn't quite understand what makes the blood move. So that's, I guess, where I come in. So what I would say, and again, I, uh, I credit the work of Gerald Pollack to helping me understand this. So basically what happens at the capillaries in the microcirculation is unlike what we're told, water exists in more than solid, liquid, and gas. And this idea that there's only three phases of matter. So then the question is, if there's only three phases of matter, what state of water is the water in our cells? And it's obviously not ice and it's not steam and it's definitely not water because if you poke a hole in somebody's leg, you don't get water squirting out of their leg. So the water is in the cells is all in a gel phase. And this has uh, huge ramifications for understanding our health and also the circulation. And as Pollock points out, uh, whenever you take a hydrophilic surface like a protein or nafion, a plastic, and you put it in bulk water, it forms... Um, a gel phase that is negatively charged on lining this uh, this protein or this this hydrophilic surface. So if you think about it, the reason why the sap moves up in a tree is because it's the the channels in the tree, so-called xylem channels, are these hydrophilic proteins which create this negatively charged gel phase lining the tubes. And wherever there's a negative charge, there's then going to be a positive charge that is in the free water or liquid water or bulk water. So you have a negatively charged gel lining the tube, and then you have positive uh, charged charges in the bulk water. The positive charges repel each other, and that starts the water moving up the, or the sap moving up the xylem channels in a tree. And that's how you can overcome the so-called barometric limit and get the water to move up a tree. In the, in the capillaries, it's the same thing. You have these very hydrophilic tubes which interact with the water in the blood. They create this layer of, of negatively charged gel lining the capillaries. And then in the middle, there is this positively charged liquid or bulk water 
the positive charges repel each other and they start the blood moving. It's a very ingenious, water-based, no energy required system that's just based on the interaction of water and its fourth phase with hydrophilic surfaces. Now, any separation of charges obviously needs an energy source, and the energy source for this is a couple things primarily. One is sunlight. So if you put a, a, a rolled up tube in water and you put it in a lead box, it doesn't form these separation of charges. But if you shine the sun on it, it does. And then you'll get flow through the tube. So the sunlight does or connection with the electromagnetic field of the earth also charges up the tubes. And the third thing is the emanations or radiation from a human being, particularly their hands or feet, will also uh, supply the energy for charging up the tubes and creating flow. So essentially, the combination of eating good food and being in the sunlight and connecting to the earth and having human or connections with animals or some other living being is what creates flow in in any tube, but particularly in the blood in our capillaries, that is the pump that moves the blood. And if you have a microcirculation problem, you're having either a water problem or an energy to create a gel problem, which is sunlight, earth, and human touch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's an excellent explanation. And um, Dr. Jerry Pollack, he um, is a friend of ours, and he lives in Seattle as well. And so we've learned a great deal about his work, and it really, um, you know, makes sense um, in this model. And um, one of the things he educates us as well is um, the use of infrared light, and also just infrared is naturally occurring right in our environment. And so, you know, you're drawing the connection with a lot of these chronic um, ailments and conditions that we're seeing as, you know, this continual um, disconnection from our uh, natural environment and how the natural environment really heals us on so many levels, you know, and so bringing that connection into our treatment plans and into, you know, our um, daily life is essential for um, not only good heart health, but really good health in general. So I, I think that's an excellent um, point. Do you use um, light therapy in your practice or do you ever recommend, um, you know, people, again, are doing all these um, lifestyle practices, but still struggling with chronic symptoms? Do you um, have any tools to enhance this formation of um, exclusion zone water in in the body? Uh, I mean, uh, actually, yes. And uh, there's so many things that are repercussions of this, whether or not this gel phase forms properly. You know, mm -hmm. for ex example, I mean, there's so many of them, but you know, the reason you don't have knee pain or osteoarthritis of your knee is because you have this gel-based cushion that essentially is not only a gel, but has this negatively charged, so it repels each other so that you get a smooth gliding effect in your joints. And if over time your ability to form these gels is compromised, you'll eventually lose this cushioning gel, like which, which we call the bursa, and you'll end up with bone on bone as the cartilage, which is also formed out of proteins and gels. Uh, deteriorates. So you can see that whole disease process as a failure of the water to form into gels. So 
given that, if you one of the things that makes sense is to add extra light or so-called biophoton, just means biological light therapy, adding energy to the system, which from my standpoint helps to increase the formation of these gels, which is the reason why you have proper function in the first place. So I, I use it for, uh, it's basically pain relief and to help function and uh, basically to stimulate the formation of gels, which I would contend that most, if not all diseases, are somehow on their basic level water-based or failure of this gel formation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And no, absolutely. And I, I completely agree in some of my um, studies and learning also of how um, I haven't gotten through Jerry's book, um, Cells, Gels, and I think I, c- I can't remember the title, but I read part of it. And I know that that gel structure also um, maintains our cell voltage, right? And so that has a huge contributing factor to communication, right, um, between ourselves. And when that's lost, um, we see disease. And so I, I agree. I mean, I think, you know, we're so used to thinking about biochemistry, right, how to how to give somebody a pill or, a, you know, a substance to change our biochemistry. And I, you know, I, I feel like we're not only talking about biochemistry here, but also biophysics and how do we um, use both tools to really have a deeper understanding of our physiology and also how to heal our body as well. So Dr. Cowan, this is such great information. And I know that we could, you know, we have so much that I could explore talking with you, but I want to um, kind of jump into um, looking at the heart and the kind of the electrical system of the heart. And one of the things that we see a lot in our practice is um, what we would call um, vagus nerve toxicity or autonomic dysfunction. And we look at the 10th cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, and how that can, if, if that is not functioning properly, we can see a lot of symptoms, not only with the digestive tract, but also the parasympathetic um, control of the heart. And I know that you've had um, some great insights around, um, you know, this parasympathetic tone we would call to our heart. And for our listeners, um, just real briefly, that we have two parts of our autonomic nervous system, or sympathetic and parasympathetic. And um, the parasympathetic, um, we think about as rest and digest. So those types of systems in the body and sympathetic is fight or flight. And so we're always striving to have a balance. And in modern day, we're, we're all probably in fight or, fight or flight more um, than we were meant to be. So, you know, so how that shows up in the heart, if we don't have good parasympathetic tone, we could have things like increased heart rate um, and other, you know, symptoms. But do you mind sharing some insights you have about um, the innervation and the nervous system relationship in the heart? So I got into that part because, uh, so one part of this Human Heart, Cosmic Heart book that I wrote was the heart is, is not a pump, and then I had to sort of figure out what it does and how the blood moves, which we talked about. The other part was probably to many equally or maybe more controversial, which is <laughs> unlike what most of us think, not all heart attacks are caused by blocked arteries. In fact, if you go to another website by a friend of mine, uh, called heartattacknew.com. At the bottom of that is a print version, and there's a book print reprinted by an Italian pathologist named Giorgio Baroldi, who did 
autopsies on people who died of heart attacks for 40 years and studied the entire medical literature on why people die of heart attacks. And he said only 41% have a significant blockage in the artery leading to the part of their heart that had the uh, attack. And of those, 50% came after the heart attack, not before, which means that 80% of heart attacks are not associated with significant blockages, which is strange from a modern cardiology point of view because that seems to be all they're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yet 80% of the people don't even have that problem. And as many know, there have been many studies on stents and bypasses which show that they don't improve the uh, length that people live, they don't prevent further heart attacks, and a recent study on stents, which if it was all about blocked arteries, if you put a stent in, it should be the end of it, but they don't even improve chest pain. So I'm not sure what the indication for a stent in a non-acute situation is. Uh, So the question then is, why do these people have heart attacks if it's not from blocked arteries? And there are a number of reasons, but one of them, which we now know and which modern cardiology is somewhat aware of, is that approximately 90 plus percent of people who go on to have a heart attack have a decreased parasympathetic activity in the days, weeks, and months leading up to the event. So as you explained, we have two autonomic nervous systems, a sympathetic or fight or flight and a parasympathetic or rest and digest. And they should always be in balance. And when the modern cardiology uses beta blockers to block the sympathetic, but what, but what, was re- what has really been found is that it's not overactivity of the sympathetic that causes people to have heart attacks but decreased activity of the parasympathetic, which it's similar, but it's not the same. Now, this decreased activity of the parasympathetic nerve uh, comes, or nervous system, comes because of stress, poor diet, physical inactivity, diabetes, smoking, high blood pressure, all the things that cause people to have heart disease. So if you have decreased parasympathetic tone, uh, that sets off a whole chain of events, which I described in my book and on articles, that actually leads people to actually have a heart attack. And it was for that reason that I talk about a medicine called strophanthus, which actually supports the parasympathetic activity specifically in the heart and has been used as a cardiotonic in prevention and treatment of heart disease for about a century or so. So that is a major factor, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is pretty much completely ignored in modern medicine and modern cardiology, is a major factor in the etiology of heart disease. And there's numerous studies and case reports that actually prove this. I've learned about strophanthus uh, through your work, and I'm, I'm still getting to know that, you know, with patients, um, you know, um, when it's clinically appropriate, but it's a great tool. Um, and so what are some other tools? I mean, do you feel like strophanthus um, is enough to give people that parasympathetic tone? Are there other um, nutritional things or, you know, just lifestyle things to, I, I think you made a really good point. It's not just the overactivity of the sympathetic nervous system, but also the, um, 
the decreased rate um, activity of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so how should our um, audience improve their parasympathetic activity um, in their in their life? I mean, that's a big question. I know. No small question. That involves, you know, good diet and physical activity and emotional support and human touch and sunlight and earthing and not, you know, having toxic influences, not being exposed to, you know, glyphosate and toxic metals and all kinds of things that, you know, are basically modern life, including all the electromagnetic pollution that we're involved in. So, mm-hmm. you know, basically a, a life of parasympathetic support mm-hmm. is not, not the modern American way of life. It's the antithesis, right? Um, and, so, mm-hmm. You know, and how we're going to sort that out and have people, you know, live in that, you know, with parasympathetic support is I think remains to be worked out, but we're not going in the right direction as we are right now. Mm-hmm. I'm in complete agreement, and I'm glad you brought up um, the whole EMF uh, piece of the conversation. I have a podcast um, with Nick Pino, who's a investigative journalist, is discussing um, the impact of EMF on our health, and that's something I, I work with uh, Dr. Klinghart um, in Seattle at Sophia Health Institute, and he's been really talking about EMF from day one about how that is really uh, disturbing on not only our uh, nervous systems, but it, you know, it's disturbing our health on uh, many levels, in, uh, including our epigenetic expression of our DNA. And, you know, I think we're, as you said, it, it, it's just, um, you know, it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And I think we just need to continue to all educate ourselves and our communities and, um, you know, with 5G coming out and how it's, you know, grounding and going out in nature is going to become even more and more important um, to help um, reduce the side effects of this exposure until we um, find another way, right? Yeah, there's a urgent need for sanity in, well, the world, but <laughs> this country in particular. And uh, there's a lot of influences that are not interested in in pursuing this so and i think uh, i would say that looking to normal governmental or you know like google isn't going to fix this problem Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) this is very true and i think um you know like anything when we are um seeing the patients that you and i both do um we you just kind of follow the money of where these industries, um, you know, the money and kind of the agenda of these industries. And they're very, um, I'm trying to be politically correct, but very motivated not to change right now. And so that's the hard part. But so I think with anything, it starts with grassroots and educating your community and making the choices that are going to be best for you and your family. And, um, you know, cumulative exposure over time is going to be um, the most harmful. So how do you reduce your exposure over time and do the things that you can do while we're all catching up, right? Uh, While society is catching up to understand um, that this is going to be probably looked at like secondhand smoke one day or even worse, you know, so. The the curious thing is, and and for those of us who are trained as medical doctors. You know, if you were a, a, a dolphin vet and somebody said, well, why is this dolphin sick? 
one of the things you would look at is probably the water that the dolphin is swimming in. Mm -hmm. I don't know that for sure, but I don't know what vets do these days. But (laughs) I would think that would be an obvious source of investigation. And yet that's that's the similar thing with basically our food and water and air and electromagnetic fields and houses and everything. And that's the water that we humans are swimming in. And the water is very polluted, uh, really polluted. The problem is, no matter what you or I or anybody listening does as an individual, it's not effective enough. Because this is a collective problem. Just like the dolphin, you could say, well, go swim over there. It's better there. And it may be better there. And so living in this house with this shield and this EMF device may be better. And I'm not saying it is or it isn't. My guess is it is. But ultimately, that's not going to work because, you know, the whole the whole water that we're swimming in is really affected in an unprecedented for human beings way. And it's getting worse. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not a politician or, or anybody who knows, well, here's the strategy to do something about that. All I can say is, you know, unless we start paying attention to our water environment, and I mean that like a dolphin, uh, we're not going to get anywhere with this. Mm-hmm. And that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. I, I'm in complete agreement with you. I mean, I, I see so many people who are sick and that are suffering way too much, right? You know, they're doing everything right. And it's not from a lack of trying um, that they're not well. And, you know, we're all scratching our heads, like, why is this so hard? And, you know, ultimately, kind of where I sit right now is that our bodies are kind of this microcosm of this macrocosm that we're in, and we've um, disrupted our environment so much that, um, you know, this is the one of the outcomes. And so I, I agree. And I, I know that we can, you know, we can feel really depressed about this, right. And then there, we also can, you know, how I, I see, um, you know, the more that we just educate our communities and our um, patients, and we all, you know, make decisions in um, that we're, we have control over, then, you know, that has a ripple effect. But it's, it, we, we do need, um, we do need to wake up. I, th- I think that all of the things that we're, you know, talking about um, are really, really important. And as you said, um, you know, it's a synergistic effect, right? It's like one plus one doesn't equal two. So, you know, we all know about glyphosate, but it's like glyphosate plus aluminum plus a Gardasil vaccine plus a mold exposure plus a EMF. You know, it's like there's this synergistic soup that we're in that, um, you know, that we're, we're, we're um, it's challenging to get out of. So that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um. So, Dr. Cowan, I, I mean, I have a couple other, you know, thoughts, but I, I think one thing that um, I know you could speak an hour about, but um, just touching on um, this whole idea of, since we're thinking about um, cardiovascular health, the health of, um, you know, how to keep our um, cardiovascular system healthy, and there's one, you know, probably really big misconception that still people um, don't understand um, about cholesterol. And so, um, you know, often um, our patients, um, you know, are educated about this, but I would love to hear your thoughts and 
Um, my mentor, Dr. Klinghardt, his mentor told him, you know, when cholesterol goes, life goes. And so we, I know we probably have a very um, similar idea about cholesterol, but can you just share just a brief, a few of your insights about um, somebody who is thinking about their overall health and are um, concerned about their cholesterol levels? So, you know, what, what should we be concerned about? And is cholesterol really the problem or is it just a symptom of something else that we need to be looking at? Yeah, I mean, cholesterol is definitely not the problem. Cholesterol is your body's main repair substance. So if you have injury to your vessels or infl inflammatory problems, which I would say you get inflammation because the, the gel uh, protection of your inner lining is not healthy. So the vessel gets exposed, which creates damage to the vessel, and your body uses cholesterol essentially to seal the wound. That's the analogy, because I like to speak in analogies. I, I guess that's the word. It's, it's like going to a city and there you, find, you see a lot of fire trucks. And you say, why do you have so many fire trucks? And say, because we have a lot of fires. And you say, well, I know the solution to your problem is to get rid of the fire trucks. <laughs> and that's obviously the reason they have a lot of fire trucks is because they have a lot of fires and they've learned that they better have fire trucks. So if somebody has high cholesterol, that's, first of all, it's generally speaking, as, uh, the higher your cholesterol, the longer you live. That's what the studies actually show. The people with the lowest cholesterol have the highest all-cause mortality. There's, there's no doubt of that. The, the argument against that is, well, that doesn't mean that, you know, because cancer patients typically often have low cholesterol. So it's not saying that low cholesterol causes cancer. But it is saying that when your body's repair substance wears out, then you're in trouble. Mm -hmm. So uh, first of all, I wouldn't worry about high cholesterol, except in the sense of that means you're probably under some sort of physiological stress. And you might want to find out what that is and, and try not to be under that kind of stress. And then your cholesterol would normalize usually, which doesn't mean it'll get low or where your cardiologist might want it, uh, but it, it, at least it won't be a problem. But generally, that's, it, there's way too much emphasis on cholesterol. There needs, uh, often the best strategy is just don't do the test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, um, you've probably seen in your career and, you know, the cholesterol reference ranges in the labs getting um, lower and lower kind of what they want to can be considered normal. And I, I think that's no um, coincidence when we have, you know, drugs like statins to lower the numbers and everything. And so, um, you know, I'm very comfortable with my patients having a cholesterol from, you know, over 200. And so a total cholesterol, and there's ways that, you know, we can look at, um, you know, HDL and LDL and, you know, triglycerides and then different lipoproteins to assess uh, risk factors. But I think, you know, the point that I know that I'm just trying to get across is that if your cholesterol is, quote, high, first of all, let's look at that number. And then the, the solution is not just to lower that number. That doesn't always translate into um, solving the problem or better health outcomes. So um, I think it's just... I am surprised. I feel like it's like the low fat craze, right? So I think this, this, um, this idea is still perpetuated. And, um, I just want to continue to share people to think, think more thoroughly about this, um, problem. Well, the whole, the whole thing that I, I would say about that is, is as I just pointed out, um, uh, 
plaque buildup in the coronary arteries is either not the only reason why people have heart attacks, and I would argue is not even the predominant reason. And, you know, my contribution to this debate, the debate amongst everybody before this, and I don't want to sound weird about this, but was what do we do about plaque? So we do we stent? Do we bypass? Do we put people on statin drugs? Do we do chelation? Do we do low-fat diets, no-fat diets? What do we do about the plaque? Everybody is concerned alternative or otherwise about the plaque. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is, yeah, but uh, the plaque only accounts for uh, 20% of heart attacks in the first place. The reason people die of heart disease is because they die of disease of the metabolism, the energetics of the heart itself. It's not because of plaque. That's only a secondary complication. And interestingly, there are now cardiologists who are coming out and saying this because they're realizing that the whatever billion dollar stent industry hasn't worked. And there was an article in New York Times saying, Headline, stents proven useless, <laughs> which, which means they, there has to be some other explanation. And until now, there has been no explanation, well, why do people have heart attacks? And that's what I actually wrote articles in a book, What Causes Heart Attacks? There are other reasons they've been known about research for 100, 100 years at least. And so that gets us away from these ridiculous conversations about what somebody's cholesterol and even what their LDL and HDL is, that stuff, it, you know, that's a misplaced focus. Mm-hmm. Let's say that. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about this metabolic issue in the heart, are you talking about not only maybe the energy production of the heart cells and the mitochondrial function or are you and or are you talking about this whole um, fluid um, dynamic um, issue within the heart itself? I know you talk about how the you know, you talked about today earlier, too, about um, how the water organ, the blood organizes itself in the heart. Are you talking about both of those things? Uh, Yeah, but the main thing, the main reason, again, it's all explained in my book, but but um, people have heart attacks because they don't, they're not able to generate the energy they need in the mitochondria, similar as cancer. They do it in the cytoplasm through fermentation, otherwise known as glycolysis. That builds up lactic acid in the tissues. And just like lactic acid in your leg causes cramps and pain in your heart, it causes angina. But the difference between your leg and your heart is your leg can stop and your heart can't. So the lactic acid continues to build up in your heart. You get a localized metabolic acidosis, meaning an acidification of the tissues in your heart, and that causes uh, necrosis or ischemia infarction of your heart. Uh, So that's very clear. And this medicine, strophanthus, that I talk about, converts the lactic acid into pyruvate to be used as a fuel, and that breaks the cycle. And Everybody would agree that without lactic acid buildup, there can be no, uh, you know, necrosis or infarction of the heart. So if you can break that cycle by improving the energetics of the heart, and then if needed, actually get rid of the lactic acid, you make a big step in in addressing this disease. Now, why do why do we get a mitochondrial failure? 
in our cells. Uh, I mean, that gets back to poor diet, too many carbohydrates, uh, heavy metals, EMFs, poor water, stress, all, all those things. All those things affect mitochondrial function. And what I'm saying is that this whole thing that we now know is as intimate to the cancer process, same process happening in the heart. Um, it's all about energy flow, water dynamics, you know, poisoning, et cetera, all that usual stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, living on the planet. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, that's that's an excellent insight, and I am so glad you touched on that. And I know that we're coming up on time, Dr. Cowan, and so I just wanted to share with um, our audience, you mentioned Strophanthus and then um, obviously um, your book, but you have a great website with some of your trusted um, you know, tools and remedies, and I know that you also have a, um, a, a garden in, I believe, Napa Valley where you're producing a lot of your, um, you know, your herbs and products. Can you just share a little bit about where people can learn more about um, these remedies? Uh, the two main websites are uh, drcowensgarden.com. That's where my family has uh, a business where we, uh, we take vegetables and we make them into powder to essentially try to diversify, diversify people's vegetable intake. And I wrote a little book about that, How and Why to Eat More Vegetables. Um, and then the, the thing to do with heart and medicines is on the humanheartcosmicheart.com website. And I also have another uh, book coming out the end of August, early September. And I hope that, uh, or let me say, I ask people to go to Amazon in the first week in September and buy the book from them. Um, That I've heard increases your visibility and that's probably a good thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you can write a review, that also helps. And the book book is called Vaccines and Autoimmunity and the Changing Nature of Childhood Disease. And in there, I take a look at what childhood disease is and this whole business of uh, how water influences our physiology and what is happening when we vaccinate a child. Mm. So I hope people take a look at that as well. Absolutely. It's such a great and important topic. And I would love to have you, you know, back on the podcast um, in the fall to talk more about that. I'm actually, I'm um, 34 weeks pregnant with my first child. So this is a um, important topic near and dear to my heart. So I'm so glad that you're courageous enough enough to talk about it. And it's really much needed right now. Courageous or crazy? I think it's both, right? We're on the spectrum of both. (laughs) Well, I can't thank you enough uh, for your time. I know that you're very busy and I just really enjoyed um, our conversation today. I know that we could dive deeper in each of these topics and I encourage our audience to really look at your work, buy your books. Um, You have so many great um, insights that I think um, explain a lot about why we're seeing a lot of the chronic conditions that we are right now. And so um, I'm really grateful for your work and all that you're doing right now. Okay. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, Dr. Cowan. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Thomas Cowan. If you want to learn more about Dr. Cowan's work, you can learn more at humanheartcosmicheart.com as well as his amazing biodynamic products, drcowansgarden.com. We'll be sharing more information about his book, Vaccines and Autoimmunity, that's due out the fall of 2018. Thank you so much.